you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 1. We will finish Mark chapter 1 this morning. Finish Mark chapter 1. And the title of today's sermon is The Kingdom of God Marches On. The Kingdom of God Marches On. I mentioned at the beginning of this series and several times throughout that Mark is a biography, that it's, he's writing to tell us the life and story of Jesus Christ, and he's inviting us to not only uh, encounter Jesus through this story, but he's inviting us to let the story of Jesus tell the story of our life. I've asked you a few times if, if you think about your life and then God's life or God's plan as two separate things, or do you think about them as one thing together? Do you think that the story that Mark is telling in the Gospel of Mark, do you think about it as telling the story of your life? Do you think about it as telling the story of your life? Do you think about the things in your life, the things that are going on in your life, the various struggles and stresses, the joys, the goals, the aspirations? Do you ask, is this what the Bible says my life is to be about? Well, biographies, as I've said, are stories. And a lot of times, a good biography will draw you into that story, or a good movie will draw you in, and you'll feel like you're a part of it. You're experiencing the story with it. And so discipleship, then, is following Jesus along the way of his life. Mark is giving us insight into how Jesus lived, into how he led his life and his priorities and goals. And he's inviting us to ask the very personal question, does my life, do my priorities line up with Jesus' priorities? Have I devoted my life as a Christian to the things that Jesus says Christians devote their lives to? When we think about the big goal of our life, whatever it is for you specifically, when we think about the big goal of our life, is it the goal of God for the world? And so we're going to ask that question today. So in your Bibles, Mark chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 35. I'll invite you to stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. People were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the account of your life on this earth that we might know, that we might experience. Lord, 
Give us a supernatural ability to be there in these places to experience the, the profound nature of your ministry, the profound nature of your gospel, your gospel call on our lives. Lord, open your word to us this morning. Cause it to live and to work in our lives. We plead and we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the main idea this morning is this. Jesus' life illustrates the advancement of God's kingdom through prayer, proclamation, and healing. That, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus' life illustrates that God's kingdom is advancing, and it's advancing through prayer, through proclamation of God's word, and through healing. And we see this in a number of ways, but primarily, and firstly, we see it through prayer and preaching. Look with me at verses 35 through 39. The kingdom of God advances through prayer and preaching. So last week I said that all of the events of last time happened on one day. He was preaching in the synagogue. He cast out the demon. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then at the end in the evening, all of the town had turned up to his door. All of that was one day. And this is the next day. It says in verse 35, And rising early in the morning while it was still dark. Another translation says, while it was still very dark, or my preferred translation, so early it was nighttime, that he rose in the middle of the night and he went out to pray. Now, just to be for a number of reasons, it could be that the crowds were so overwhelming that he knew to get a jump on the crowds or to get out unnoticed, he would have had to have left early in the morning. It could be that he prioritized prayer. There are countless biographies of missionaries and pastors and faithful brothers and sisters throughout Christian history that would get up in the middle of the night and pray, even before they had iPhones to wake them up. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you wake up on your own at three in the morning, but there are countless biographies of men and women who have faithfully risen in the middle of the night to pray. And so Jesus, knowing that all the ministry that was going on, all the good ministry that was going on was taxing and exhausting and it was good, but it wasn't primary. What was primary and what is primary is for you and I to commune with God in prayer. And so Mark includes this to highlight a number of things that I said, the fame of Jesus in the region. But he goes out and he's praying as the disciples get up and they notice he's not there. They begin to search for him. It also tells us that the crowds are looking for him. It says that Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said, everyone is looking for you. So we don't know if perhaps the crowds stayed the night outside of Peter's door. We don't know if they just got up early the next morning, and they tried to beat the crowds back to see Jesus. But when they arrived, he's not there. And so Peter and the disciples began to look for him. Now, if you read the Gospels, if you read the Gospel accounts, you will note that Jesus often retreats into the wilderness to pray. And so, it doesn't tell us exactly where he is, but perhaps he'd already taken the disciples there because they knew where to find him. And so, they come to find him and they tell him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Everyone wants you to continue what you were doing yesterday. Because if you will recall, he was healing the sick and he was casting out demons and performing miracles. 
But you see, the disciples did not yet understand Jesus' mission in the world. They were seeing something amazing. They were seeing Jesus heal the sick. They were seeing Jesus cure fever. They were seeing Jesus cast out demons with a word. And they thought, well, this is just fantastic. How could he not return and carry on this work? And the people thought the same thing. This, there's never been anybody in our region like this. Because if you will recall in the synagogue, they said, what is this, a new teaching with authority? And so they were trying to, they were trying to get their minds around who Jesus is and what Jesus is, what he was here for. And so they were seeing all of this great ministry being done, all this great work being done, and the natural assumption is, well, this is why Jesus has come, to heal the sick. This is why Jesus has come, to cast out demons. And so they didn't yet understand what his primary mission was. And yet when they find Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, oh, yes, yes, let me get back and continue the work. Notice what Jesus says. He says, let's, let's just move on. Now, how counterintuitive is that for you and I? I was trying to think about some specific things that we do as a church. And so I've just got them noted here. We do things like the fall festival, the Easter drama, the outreach events that we do throughout the year, mission work locally and around our country and around the world. If we encountered in the midst of any of those things a crowd that not only came to us one day, but came begging us to continue the next day, what would we do? We'd be excited to continue. We might even say no to something else we had planned in order to continue the work that was going on. If we had men and women, boys and girls, coming to us in droves, asking us to heal them or to do what we were doing in the name of God, we would say, yes, absolutely, this has to be Good. God has to be blessing this. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. And so the disciples were thinking very much the same thing, that this is good work. Jesus is doing God's work. How could he possibly not return? And yet it's so counterintuitive to our thinking. But Jesus does not allow the hype and the excitement of the ministry to deter him from what's most essential. What's most essential, what we see in the life of Jesus, is prayer. Prayer is dependence on God in everything. Prayer is communion with God in everything. Prayer is seeking wisdom from God for everything that we do. Prayer is deep reading and meditation on the Word, so much so that it takes hold of our spirit, takes hold of our soul, it takes hold of our lives, and we begin to live out the Word of God, that we begin to pray the words of God back to God. And so Jesus does not allow even the success of ministry to deter him from prayer. And so we see the kingdom of God advances through prayer and through preaching. But notice Mark doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus prays. We hear some of his prayers later and in some of the other gospel stories, but Mark highlights Jesus' commitment to pull away from what he's doing and to pray. And so there we have a question for you and I, a reflection question right off the bat. Do we regularly prioritize prayer? Do we regularly pull away from even important things to pray? Are we willing to say no to good things in order to devote ourselves to the most essential 
things. And so it says, or Jesus says to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. And then he gives them insight into why. He says, let's go on and so I can preach because this is why I came. This is why I came out. And so it says he went throughout all Galilee. He went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. And so this journey through the surrounding towns most likely took some weeks or months. It doesn't tell us exactly how long. Mark's not overly concerned with specific amounts of time in his gospel. He wants us to see big picture things. And so this probably took some, at least some weeks. And his preaching, his focus was on preaching in the synagogue. And as I said last week, the synagogue was the center of religious life in and for the Jews. And Mark highlights that his preaching was again accompanied by authority because it says he was preaching in their synagogues in verse 39 and casting out demons, which is the same thing he was doing back in verse 22, that he was teaching them with authority and then that authority was displayed through the casting out of the demons. And so after several stories of the powerfulness of Jesus' call, which we see that in verses 16 through 20, of his teaching and his exorcisms in verses 21 and 28, of his healings and his exorcisms in 29 and 34, Mark comes back to Jesus' preaching. He comes back to it. Now, remember in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God. That's how we meet Jesus in his ministry. He is proclaiming or he is preaching the gospel of God. And so after all of these displays of his authority and his power, Mark comes back to Jesus' preaching. And so this highlights that Jesus came primarily not to heal sickness, but to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. So we see that the kingdom advances through prayer and through preaching. Now some of you may be thinking, I am not a quote-unquote preacher that does not get you off the hook of preaching preaching is not a designation for a particular office or a particular job as far as one who is a preacher or pastor preaching is the proclaiming or the proclamation of the kingdom of god in the world it's the telling with authority of the kingdom of god in the world so here again there's a there's an introspective question we need to look inside of ourselves and ask, do my priorities align with Jesus's to proclaim the, the kingdom of God? So how do we ask ourselves that? Well, it's pretty easy, I think, to ask ourselves in our hearts, do my priorities align with God's priorities? It's probably pretty quick to say yes or no on the whole. We can ask ourselves this question, do I go out of my way regularly to proclaim God's kingdom to the world. Think about the people that you interact with on a daily basis. Are you proclaiming God's kingdom to them? Think about the, the people that you see in the businesses that you use or the restaurants that you go in. Are you proclaiming to them God's kingdom in the world? Think how you order your home and your life. Do you bring in the truth of God's kingdom in order to order how you go about your home and your life and your goals and your hopes and your dreams? Think about how you deal with sickness and with suffering. Is it, do you see it inside of God's kingdom? Mark is inviting us to see that God's kingdom 
is going forward, that God's kingdom is the single most important thing in the world, and that God's kingdom advances through prayer and through the proclamation of his word. But let's look at the second portion of the story, which is verses 40 through 45, that the kingdom of God is seen in healing and in restoration. So I said that his journey throughout this, this preaching campaign probably lasted at least some weeks. And Mark doesn't tell us exactly how long and exactly where he went other than these surrounding towns in Galilee. But at some point in the midst of his preaching, a leper comes to him. It says that a leper came to him just kind of out of nowhere. That while he's preaching, a leper comes to him. And there are several occasions throughout the gospel stories where Jesus encounters a leper. Mark includes this account right here where it is. He includes it to highlight Jesus' power and Jesus' authority, which should make sense to us because that's what he's been highlighting throughout chapter 1, Jesus' power and his authority. So note that it lacks details, like what time of the day it was or where exactly it was. He doesn't tell us who was around. He only tells us that a leper shows up and kneels down in front of Jesus. So not only does this leper present a problem of illness, and I'll I'll describe leprosy in a moment. Perhaps some of you know about it. But not only is this leper ill and sick, he is unclean. Now perhaps you're familiar with Old Testament Jewish law about being clean and unclean. Perhaps you aren't, but I'll give you some insight into it. But not only was this leper a man who was sick, he was a man who was unclean. And so I want to read from Leviticus chapter 13 for a moment. Many of us don't go to Leviticus for our quiet times. Perhaps you do. But you see, Leviticus can sometimes seem like a foreign book. It can seem like one of those books that we don't go to much because it just seems odd. It seems complex and it doesn't apply anymore. And so we may neglect books like Leviticus. But here's the big picture of Leviticus and why we as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ in 2019 should care deeply about Leviticus. Because while we may not be under the law of Leviticus any longer... What Leviticus shows us is that God is particularly concerned about His holiness. It shows us that God cares an awful lot about His holiness. It shows us that God is infinitely concerned with His holiness. And if we get that, brothers and sisters, that God is holy and is without sin, and we recognize that we are entirely sinful, then that creates a problem. Praise be to God that that problem has been addressed. But at this point, this leper comes to Jesus. And in Leviticus 13 verse 45, it says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. Let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So there's a lot to unpack there, and I don't have all that much time, but I want to just kind of give you a snapshot as best I can of why this is such a big deal. You see, in Jewish culture, in Old Testament culture, 
they lived in a camp, is what they called their settlement. And in the middle of the camp was the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And later, the temple. It was the center of Jewish life. And in order to be right with God, a Jew had to make sacrifice for their sin. And in order for them to make sacrifice for their sin, they had to be ceremonially clean. Now, there's a whole laundry list about how one becomes ceremonially clean, but you had to be clean in order to be right with God. And if you were unclean, you had to go through the process of cleansing in order to go through the ceremonial sacrifice to be right with God. And so if you were unclean, brothers and sisters, there was no hope of you being right with God until you were cleansed. Now note what Leviticus said about the leper. He is unclean. He is unclean until he is healed. And until he is healed, he lives outside the camp. And so to contract the disease of leprosy in this time was a death sentence and a condemnation of life alone and apart from God. You see, lepers were among the outcasts of Jewish society. They could no longer participate in the covenant life of God's people. They were cut off from the worship of God. The word for leprosy in the Bible is used to identify a wide range of skin diseases and infections. Here it seems pretty appropriate that this is, in fact, leprosy. And in Jewish society, if you thought you had leprosy, if you see a spot on your skin that you think could be something, you had to go and present yourself to the priest. And the priest would pronounce you either clean because it's not leprosy or would pronounce you unclean because it is. And so leprosy was a terrible disease. It's a bacterial skin infection that eats away the flesh, often leaving skin hanging off the body. It deforms even the bones. It causes blindness. Ultimately, it causes death. And in many ways, lepers were walking corpses. And when a clean person approached a leper, the leper was required to call out, unclean, unclean, so not to make the clean person unclean. And so they had to avoid, they had to tell them, I am not worthy of you being around me. It was a terrible life. To touch a leper in Jewish culture is the same as touching a corpse. You were immediately unclean. And the leper was condemned to live in uncleanness until God healed them. And if God did not heal them in the here and now, they died in uncleanness. There was no other cure. And so therefore, when a leprous person was healed... It was assumed to be a work of God. There was no other cure. And so when a leprous person presented himself to the priest as cleansed, it was assumed that God had done it, which makes the story of Jesus' healing of this leper all the more astounding. So Mark sets the story in a desolate place because the leper could not live in a populated place. But the leper still breaks the law. He comes up to Jesus almost within touching distance, and it says he kneels down, And he speaks to Jesus. He doesn't say unclean. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. By stating it like this, the leper shows that he has no doubt that Jesus can not only heal his leprosy, but Jesus can make him clean before God. Because he doesn't say, make me or present me clean. He says, make me clean. And the language there communicates that Jesus can actually cleanse this man to the core. 
You see, a priest can only pronounce one clean, but Jesus makes him clean. Jesus responds with anger. Now, it's hard to see this in our English translation because it says, moved with pity. We don't think of pity and anger as being the same thing, but the Greek text reads, he grumbled aloud. And it might strike us odd that we don't think about Jesus getting angry. And Jesus is not angry at this man. I think what we're seeing here is Jesus being angry and being grieved over the effects of sin in the world. Jesus is genuinely grieved over the sin in our lives. And not just the fact that we do sin, but that we are affected by sin deep in our hearts, in our bodies, and in our lives. And so Jesus grumbles over the brokenness of creation. He is genuinely concerned, brothers and sisters, when we suffer. And then something happens. It says that Jesus touches him which is incredible. To touch a leper was to become unclean before God. To touch a leper was to be cut off from right worship of God. To touch a leper would mean to contract leprosy, potentially. And yet Jesus touches him. Can you imagine a man or a woman cut off from society, cut off from normal human contact? Perhaps he or she had never been touched in years, and Jesus touches him, and he speaks. He says, I will be clean. Notice what Mark says, verse 44. I'm sorry, verse uh, 42. Immediately, his favorite word, immediately the leprosy left him. Have you thought for a moment about what that would have looked like? Now, remember what I said about leprosy. It eats away the flesh. It deforms the bones. It may cause even blindness. It says, immediately the leprosy left him. So whoever was standing around Jesus when this happened saw this man or this woman restored to life in an instant. They saw this God-man, Jesus Christ, perform an act of creation. Because in the beginning, how did God create? He spoke things into existence. And so in order for a leper to heal, God, Jesus, had to literally speak new life into this person, and those people saw it. They saw this person restored to life by the power of Jesus' words. And so Mark's interest in this story, inside of his gospel, Mark's interest is only in Jesus' ability. He doesn't tell us much about anything at all. Only that Jesus was able, without any question, to heal and to cleanse. You see, Jews viewed leprosy as akin to a death sentence. And cleansing a leper was as marvelous as raising from the dead. Something only God can do. So therefore, when Jesus heals the leper, he is performing an act that only God can do. And he is proclaiming to the world that he is God in the flesh. For the first time, the people in Mark's gospel are getting a glimpse of Jesus that we already have. They're starting to see there is something distinct and different about this man. Because he just did something that only God can do. He raised the dead. And this occurs in the midst of his preaching mission in order to underscore the fact that his preaching has authority. See, sometimes we can get hung up on the miracle and miss the preaching, miss the authority. And yet Jesus does this in order that we might rightly hear what he says. 
Because what he says is full of authority. And so let's move to our reflection and application. How do we deal with this in a 2019 context? Well, back to the story. Jesus commands the healed man to go and present himself to the priest for healing. It, read, it says that in Leviticus 13 and 14, if you'd like to read about that. That they had to go and present themselves as healed. And that means he had to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple. And he was in Galilee. And so Jesus' intention with this was that as this man walked into the temple and announced that he had been cleansed, that the priest would understand God had done something. The priest would understand that only God heals leprosy, and here's a man healed of leprosy, and so God has done something in the life of this man. And this is Jesus' announcement, the very first announcement to the religious leaders of the day that God in the flesh had come. Because you see, if the priest saw the healed man and yet rejected he who healed the man, they were guilty of rejecting God. And Mark is highlighting Jesus' power and authority, both in that story, but also for you and I today. Like the priests in Jerusalem, Jesus expects us to recognize his power and his authority and his identity as the Son of God. And so, as I've said several times, I want to say again, we are to respond rightly to the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, I want to read from a text out of 1 John chapter 5. Listen to these words. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we are the children of God. Now hear that again. If we want to know if we are Christians, John is about to give us the criteria. He says, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. When we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God that we keep His commands and His commands are not burdensome. Do you know why Jesus' commands should concern us so much? Because they come with the infinite, eternal power of God. When Jesus tells us to flee sin and pursue holiness, we should hear that in the context of God is speaking to us, flee sin and pursue holiness. When we see Jesus devoting himself to prayer, that should communicate something to us, that we should be a people devoted to prayer. That we should be a people given to, devoted to, the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. And so responding to the authority of Jesus looks a certain way. It means that we recognize His authority. It means that we recognize our own sinfulness and our need for Him. It means that we believe in His name for salvation and healing. And it means that we follow Him joining him on his mission to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God in the world. It is proper in these moments for us to respond through the taking of the Lord's Supper, through coming to the table. Because when Jesus instituted the supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And if we are to rightly remember Jesus, that means we live appropriately. That means that we live as one who loves Jesus and recognizes his authority and that we live a life that reflects that. So as we prepare to take the table, I want us to pray now.
Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have come, that you have authority over all things. Thank you that you can be trusted. Thank you that you are a gracious Savior. We pray now. Lord, we pause and pray for healing. Pray that you would be with our brother. Pray that you would be with those who are caring for him now. Lord, you are good and you are faithful. Lord, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. I'm going to call an audible here. Uh, just invite you to, to spend some time meditating and praying over his word. I invite you to pray for what's going on here with his brother. Uh, but we will, um, we will take the table another time. But let's just, let's just pause and pray for a few months. Susan, do you need anything? Steve went down the hall. I think he's coming right now. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss this out. We can make our way to the fellowship hall. Let me, let me pray so we can give them some room to work. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, being sovereign over this. Uh, we trust you. Thank you for people that you've equipped to care for us in these times of need. We trust them to you. Pray in your name. Amen. Let's just, let's just go ahead and dismiss and give them some, some room.
Nice to see you awake this morning. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. Thought Thank he you. Was. He, he wanted the, um, the triple crown. Yeah, it was, uh, it was good. It was good. I wish I could have come. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, we had a good time. We actually um, were able to get a suite this time. Because yeah. typically when we go, there's Matthew, we drag all this stuff in. Brantley.
one that's left. 